0: This is Captain Lee, and you're listening to the Andertons Podcast. TV, and uh, today I've had the great pleasure and honour to meet uh, Mr. Reeves Gables, uh, who has just finished some gargantuan six month six month world tour mm-hmm. with the Cure, yeah. With the Cure, um, so not the entire world, but a good chunk. Of a good chunk of it, everywhere that has good taste in music.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that. There's a few <laughs>
0: places that have good taste that we didn't get to this trip, but um, yeah. but if you if you're not um, familiar with Reeves uh he's uh, really I guess you know very accomplished sort of player who I guess um was one of the members of Tin Machine Mm -hmm. I guess that's where it all kind of yeah that's where I came sort of exploded for you wasn't it uh and then went on to you know stayed with Bowie for a few years after the Tin Machine thing and then more recently he's done the Cure so as well as a whole host of other collaborations and things like that It's okay, we've got someone laying on the floor here, but that's fine. So I want to talk to you, you know, I'd love to sort of understand you're a Staten Island boy. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Well, Staten Island, um, anybody from Staten Island like
1: myself and David Johansson from the New York Dolls and Chasm Sultan from uh, Todd Rundgren and uh, well, lots of different people. Meatloaf, and uh, Earl Slick, who, yeah. who played with when when I was in uh, uh, grade school, I used to sneak into high school dances to s- see Slick play. So uh, we we all, uh, you know, everyone's convinced there's something in the water.
0: Right. On that Island. Yeah. But wouldn't t- drink it though, would you? Not in that kind uh, of water anymore. Anyway. You know, we'll
1: we'll find out when the tests come <laughs> in.
0: <laughs> so your your, you know, guitar playing, the the sort of stuff that would have been. Uh, inspired you to, to pick the instrument up with what sort of late 60s kind of yeah or what was or happening probably out there
1: probably uh, um, uh, you know or more yeah late 60s early 70s um, well Staten Island Johnny Winter with Rick Derringer Johnny Winter and came to a local theatre which was uh, you know because most of us were too young to travel very yeah. far from yeah. from home to so the fact that in our neighbourhood there was a A club that, or a a small theater that he played at, and uh, Joe Walsh, uh, the James Gang, played at. So those things crept in. And then I, um, my father talked me into taking guitar lessons when I was uh, 13 because he thought I was too serious about my schoolwork.
0: Oh, really? Which is the 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 complete opposite opposite. to what most
1: people. And he had a friend from the local corner pub that. was a guitar player and a guitar teacher, and the story, the rumor was that he had played with some well-known uh, musicians, And but he, <clears throat> I don't think anyone, his name was Turk Van Lake, and uh, he supposedly, at the time, we thought supposedly, said he played with Frank Sinatra and uh, Dor, uh, Tommy Dorsey Band and and uh, Paul Anka and all of these different American uh, pop jazz singers, and. Uh, Actually, when and when he passed away, uh, guitar player ran a half-page article as an mm-hmm. obituary that had the truth about Turk Van Lake, and everything was in fact true. So I studied guitar with him. Was your dad a player? Uh, he had a banjo, and he could kind right. of, he could, he understood the value of the dominant chord. Right So he could play the tonic <laughs> kind of something resembling a four chord and make it to the dominant chord at the right time and he could convince everybody that he could play because he would sing right. while he was doing it and he broke everything down to you know everything does kind of break down the tonic and dominant at the end of the day. So That's, well, oh, wonderful because I,
0: I know so he was a faker, but, he I, but faked I think well. that that um, your dad must have been quite an interesting character then because that that typically that generation of people, certainly in England anyway, would have been looking at guitar as the devil's music, you know, and almost going, you know, it's like, well, don't gr- do that, but your dad I grew up on
1: it. Staten Island, so it was, you know, it was one of the boroughs of New York City, but uh, he was a Southern boy, and mm-hmm. uh, he, I remember I, I won a, uh, the first Hot Tuna album, which hot for anyone that doesn't know about Hot Tuna, Hot Tuna was Yorma from and Jack Cassidy from Jefferson Airplane. Uh, but it was their blues foray, right. and their first album was acoustic blues recorded live in New Orleans. Them doing their acoustic thing, and I remember, I remember bringing the record home, and it was the one record that I had kind—I of, guess had seen it in like a Circus Magazine, had seen it mentioned. So when I, when I won, you know, it was one of those ball toss games when I actually won enough that I could pick something off the shelf. I picked that and I brought it home. And this was right around the same time that Sticky Fingers came out okay. by the Rolling Stones, and um, uh, he, I had it on, and he wa- was walking through the through the house, and he stopped, and he looks at me, he looks at the turntable, and he goes, "When I was your age, I had used to have to go to the bad part of town, and across the railroad tracks, and sneak under the t- tent flap, and hide to listen to the church revivals. You know, it's right. the blues guys that yep. would be doing, and they'd be doing, you know, it was." They were little acoustic blues gigs, you know, like the type that uh, Robert Johnson probably yeah. did, or you know. And so <clears throat> he he liked the devil's music, and he also, you know, the joke around the house was he liked both kinds of music, country and western, <laughs> and but blues was in there too. And uh, oh, he sounds cool, but uh, and you know he he thought that playing guitar would make me more sociable. And did it? (laughs) Uh, I think it probably made me more antisocial. That was when I wrote a a column in the 90s for uh, uh, a guitar for the practicing musician. I called it antisocial guitar because I was kind of rubbing against the norms at the time, which were, you know, at that point, it was still, it was, when I started, it was hair metal was on, was waning a little bit and though it never really went away and grunge was coming in and that kind of did go away. But... uh, as a nod to my father, I called it anti social guitar because it was, I was in fact, uh, I mean, I was kind of functioning as a malcontent in the guitar <laughs> community, I think. <laughs>
0: Did the guitar um were you immediately hooked were you did you devote large chunks of your teenage years to sort of you know playing and mastering it
1: well i realized that well i remember some point in my 20s i realized that i hadn't made a decision since i was 16 that didn't involve could i play guitar when i went right. there like if you know if i went over a friend's house or if we well, we actually moved at one point, and it was like, well, I, you know, will, I, will there be people to play with when I move to this new town, or, yeah. you know. But that wasn't really my decision, that was my parents' decision. Uh, but, um, it, I was, I i was more hooked than I realized, but I always thought I was a complete, uh, uh the guy least likely. Mm. You know, in my mind, I, I was starting late, because all my friends that played started early, like at yeah. eight or nine. I thought, and, and, uh, I, you know, couldn't, couldn't hear pitches well enough to figure out songs and I'd had no time and I couldn't dance. And so I thought I'm not a natural musician, but, you know, in, when you look back over the long haul of, you know, playing guitar for 40 years or whatever, it, 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 you know, you realize that that was just, you know, the wisdom of a, of a. Twenty-two-year-old thinking I wasn't a natural or what shouldn't be doing this, but I was always doing it anyway. So,
0: I... you because you're. I mean, obviously, that there's a there's a chunk of time uh, prior to the the, the Tim Machine stuff where you know you were active as a professional musician, mm-hmm. but you've always played in. I want to use the word unconventional but I don't you know what, what what is it that's attracted you to the kinds of bands that you've ended up working with because they're all bands that perhaps aren't necessarily just conventional
1: well I remember a, as a kid seeing uh, this guy Alvino Ray who was kind of you know Sparky's talking piano thing that okay. Jeff Beck has talked about it was the American version it was on this TV show called Lawrence Walk, and I used to watch uh, an American show called Hee Haw, with my father, which was all country music, but they were playing live in the studio. So, you know, anybody that I, I really wanted to be Don Rich, who was the guy that that uh, was the the guy behind the guy, like. Right. Uh, so he played. Don Rich played with Buck Owens, and he Don Rich played lead guitar and sang high harmony. And I remember at one festival with Bowie, realizing that. I was the guy behind the guy playing lead guitar and singing high harmony. I had just gotten the genre completely wrong, <laughs> you know. But um well, and and I was drawn to, you know, the electricness of the guitar and the fact that you could and even before I had an electric guitar, I had a harmony acoustic and I I used to cut strips of paper and weave it through my strings so that the notes would buzz like yep. they had distortion because yep. I didn't know exactly how it was being done, but I would, I would do that. But um, I went to, when uh, I was university age, I went to art school and because uh, I, th- I wanted to go to music school, but I thought that was impractical and I wasn't a good enough, you know, and was never going to be a, a musician. So I, I went to art school and while I was at art school, uh, I started taking lessons from John Schofield who at that point hadn't played with Miles Davis yet. And I just saw an ad for, but I had seen him play with Billy Cobham and George mm. Duke and uh, started taking lessons from him, which opened up the guitar harmonically to me. And what, what, uh, um, what Sko's has said since is that when I took lessons from him, I already had all the rock tricks Figured out, yeah, and he, and so he told me, you know, he he showed me how to read music, and then started, and plus Turk, I had already taken lessons from Turk Van Lake, so he had started me reading music, but uh, Schofield said, listen to the piano players' left hand, and listen to horn players, and stop listening to guitar players. So that sent me down a path, and then he talked me into going to Berkeley and in Bo- in Boston to music school, and I had a natural inclination towards noise making but uh, I realized that I wasn't going to get the respect to do what I wanted to do unless I could do what the straight musicians could do
2: mm-hmm.
1: so <clears throat> I uh, I and and actually for the fun of it I had an 11 piece horn band when I was in school so which was like a you know it was a it was it was like a uh, well, in America, we had the Tonight Show Band, which was probably like any, uh, like what Jonathan Ross is now, yeah. except he had a big band. Yeah. And my, that band was like the, that kind of band on acid. Yeah. You know, lots of odd meter stuff and things like that. But I got, and I, um, I studied horn arranging and all that. And that opened my mind up, especially things like low interval limits where you're not supposed to play, you know, as, as, the, as you get lower in, in pitch... Especially with brass instruments, the overtone series will clash, so you have to simplify the harmony. So you stick to fifths and and fourths as you as you write for say trombone and uh, saxophones, baritone sax. So you simplify the harmony because the overtones will rub because of the harmonic series uh, and and the fact that it's the tempered scale versus the non-tempered scale, and you know trying to average out pitches because of the piano. And, uh, and
0: this is all am, when you're going, in your early 20s? This is in sort of, my teen, late is still teens. still in your late teens.
1: And, and I thought, well, if there's rubs that happen between those notes, there's, yeah. if they're telling me not to do it, then maybe there's something in there that I should do. So I got involved with that. And then I started playing, you know, if we fast forward a little bit, or com- cl- yeah, fast forward a little bit, in 1986 I did hundred and eighty-eight weddings. So I was playing jazz standards and doing that, and then I was playing the country circuit in Boston, and I was giving guitar lessons, this is af- all after music school, and I had my own all original rock band, which didn't work that much, so I had plenty of time to actually work as a musician, and I was working in a music store, so okay. I was meeting... Other musicians, but my whole, the whole gestalt of it, or the whole, the whole, my whole driving thing was I needed to know how to play all these styles legitimately, yeah. so I could p- make music that was illegitimate. And if somebody said, "Well, you can make noise, but you can't play giant steps," then I could say, "Okay, you know, I, can I say, mother- you can <laughs> say Anything you like. <laughs> I'd, I said, "Okay, mother, let's play giant steps." Yeah, you know, I I needed to be able to play. It's like the Billy Sheen. Well, a lot of people said, but I remember Billy Sheen saying, "You have to know all the rules before you break them." So I went on a journey of learning all the rules, and then it, that gave me a really bad attitude because I was like, "Yeah, I can play what you're playing, you know, <laughs> but we're gonna play what
0: I want to play," and uh, that's how I ended up here. But that that makes in a, a little lot room of, yeah, with I mean, cameras. Yeah, I mean that that makes a lot of sense though because it. it um... That wanting to push back against what's conventional and what people have said that, you know, this is the way that music should be constructed and you're gonna go, well, there's no such thing as should be constructed. There's only what you like and what you don't like. Well, yeah, everybody tries to make
1: things legitimate, you know, I mean, is even, we see it where, you know, bands will, after they reach a certain level of success or, you know, whether it's Metallica or McCartney, they decide to make their record with an orchestra. Because yeah. now I'm legitimate. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, there's also other reasons for that. I don't mean to slag them off, but, but, but I, I never sought legitimacy. Yeah. Other, th- I just sought the skills to, to, um, to, um, to be, uh, equal or better, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, uh. Which sounds egotistical, and I don't mean it that way, but I just, you know, even down to my pickups that I put in my guitars back then, I had one of the early sets of, of, um, uh, you know, the Rat pedal came out mm-hmm. in the late '70s, and that was a revelation. That was finally there's a pedal that doesn't sound like a fuzz box and it doesn't sound like a, a, a tube screamer, which was around. And I I don't like don't like tube screamers they're just like a halfway measure in my mind and um, I got the EMG pickups because if I wanted to play with the amount of gain I wanted to play with the producers and engineers would complain about the noise so I had the old EMGs that had the letters and it said EMG instead of the little EMG at the bottom and and uh, and not because I wasn't Incredibly in love with the sound of those pickups, but because they would not make noise, and those those things were, you know, they were all a means to the yeah. same end. Just like learning to play giant steps, it was it was so I could do what I wanted without having to take any shit. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Now that we're talking about gear, um, there was a quote I read about you, about, you know, you you love to use gear where perhaps it isn't, people aren't going to have a a preconception about stylistically what music you're going to play, you know, you like the under, not necessarily the underdog, but it's almost like choose the instrument that people don't expect you to choose rather than the one that they do.
1: In the the tin machine days and and before that, because I was playing, I had to take out a loan to get my first Steinberger. Uh, I uh, I liked that because they didn't have history. Yeah. And I remember the place, the music store I was working at. Paul Reed Smith was just starting. He used to come in with his guitars. He'd drive his guitars up from Maryland up to Boston and bring guitars into the store. Yeah. And he'd be bringing them in, and I got used to seeing him. And I would give him shit because I'd be like, Paul, it's it's oh, here was it, it's. It's 1983, and you're still making guitars out of wood. You know, like, look at the, this is graphite. This is the future. And and I like the fact that the the Steinbergers didn't have a history. And then they develop. you know, you help those, in, you become part of the cliche of those instruments there's a, in there's a certain a, way. There's a
0: great Tin Machine video of the, 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 the you and obviously Bowie and the rest of the band in a hotel room. I forget, but they. I don't know if you've got see-through Steinbows? Oh, we had, right?
1: we had uh, I had gotten one made out of, covered with Mylar. Right. And then David saw one, and mine was virtually unplayable because they covered the fretboard as well. <laughs> and then uh, David saw it, and he wanted one. They said, oh, we have one that we experimented on first, but we just did the body. And his was completely playable because they didn't coat the fretboard, which always bugged me that he got the one that was playable. But, um, uh, yeah, that was... That was that that whole that guitar sort of became symbolic of the. the I mean, our, we we knew what we were getting into with Tin Machine. You know, we knew we were going to rub everybody the wrong way. We knew it was it was. When you listen to it now, it sounds relatively tame. But in in the, in 1989, when it came out, it was like the shock of the new. Yeah. You know, and uh, um, we. Uh, we, we thought rock music was supposed to piss people off. It's just that we were pissing off, you know, guys like, you know. I mean, and we were reacting to Guns N' Roses that come out, you know, because, oh, yeah. that was radical. A Les Paul, a guy with a Les Paul sunglasses, long curly hair, and leather pants. That's, that's innovative. We've never seen that before in rock. You know, and so our attitude was like, you know, no, you've never seen this. You've never yeah. seen. I remember. You've never
0: seen a bunch of guys in suits with guitars the, the, without headstocks. The press reaction to Tim Machine was, yeah, pretty negative, wasn't it? I, but not negative necessarily about the music. I just think everyone was like, you know, well, a lot what, you, of, what you, you've taken, you know, you've taken this cherished icon in David Bowie, and it's like, what are you, what are you doing? But it, but in a way, that was so. Well, a chunk of that's how he that was him, wasn't it? Just like don't do it, don't do what people expect me to do.
1: Well, yeah, and I would thought people would have figured that out, especially the British press, who were probably the most hostile. But again, it was one, it was you know, the record sold really well, so we laughed all the way to the bank, (laughs) you know. And and um, you know, I think the the thing was that. the idol worshippers wanted their idol untainted, and the fact that he that the band was with three Americans mm. didn't help.
0: And he'd probably just done his most commercial record ever, ever, ever.
1: Well, it was. And
0: then did Tim Machine? It
1: was. Uh, he had done Let's Dance, but then there was uh, Tonight and Never Let okay. Me Down, and they both. Right. Th- it was a gradual nosedive, so we basically fell on the on the grenade, you know, and, and got rid of all, all, uh, future Took one for the team, did you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then I continued on with them and then I switched guitars to, uh, to, uh, Parker's because another yes. guitar, they had no history. I think that was that the point. first
0: time that, that, uh, I remember seeing you used in press advertising for a brand mm-hmm. was, was the Parker thing. You, yeah. You were definitely there kind of, and even post boy, even that, uh, was uh, for a little while
1: uh, when uh, they were associated with Korg and Marshall uh, Richie Fliegler who was the artist rep uh, his comment was the last thing we need is for Parker Guitars to become associated with someone that plays like Reeves Gabrels <laughs> so I took that as another compliment and then eventually I ended up uh, you know, on the back of every guitar magazine holding a Parker yeah. but that was after I think Richie got fired so
0: did you were you using the because um, they had a MIDI version of it did you ever go into that sort of territory I, I as had well? the
1: MIDI version that I used for recording uh my solo stuff right uh but I never used it with with David and then I you know I went through the 90s as David's musical director and co-writer yeah. and guitar player and then I quit in uh very late, 1999, after we finished the Hours record. And uh, then uh, he had talked me into doing a solo record uh, and, and was going to start his own record label, David. By when I say he, I meant David Bowie. And um, then I finished, I, so I, made, I did the record. When I finished the record, I said, you know, I got the record done. He goes, oh, I decided not to do a solo, I, uh, my own record label. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so then I found someone else to put it out and then I opened for uh, uh, the tour we did with Nine Inch Nails I was I, in America I was opening shows and then playing uh, the last five songs with Nine Inch Nails in their set and then playing the whole set with David every night which was good
0: because it kept mm. me out of trouble oh, that sounds cool <laughs> and then so the the more recent hookup with The Cure, how did that kind of come around?
1: Well, I had met Robert uh, when I was the musical director for David's birthday show in 97, I think it was, and uh, his 50th birthday at Madison Square Garden. My job was to go through uh, with all the songs with all the guests, which, so, let's make sure that they knew the songs they were going to play before rehearsal, and, and so like Lou Reed and uh, Foo Fighters, and uh, Sonic Youth, and Sonic Youth just let Sonic Youth do what Sonic Youth was going to do. And we just had them, They we called it the Sonic Youth Faucet, <laughs> where we just let, they played along with the rest of us and we would just bring them in for the noise sections and then dial them back out at the front of the house. But um, um, I met Robert, he was the last one in, and he was playing a song that, that we'd written David and I had written called Last Thing You Should Do from the Earthling record and then he was doing Quicksand with David and Robert is thorough and Robert knew the song so it didn't took about an hour to run through it with him and then that was a Wednesday re- rehearsal started on a Saturday and at some point on Friday Robert and I kind of realized we were that we hadn't been to bed yet and uh, we went we went back to our separate hotel rooms and reconvened on Saturday, but we lost a day or two in there. So that, friend, there. that friendship mm. started there and, and uh, uh, 2012 I was just coming over to England and I I wrote to him because he had um, he and I had, I had played on in the subsequent years after David's birthday show I played on the track Wrong Number which was a Cure single and a couple of other things and then he and I and Jason Cooper, the drummer from The Cure, had uh, done a thing for the South Park guys for their movie, Orgasmo. Right. And um, then we... Uh, uh, what else did we do? Oh, and then uh, Robert sang, and we, we wrote a song from my second solo album, which is a really beautiful song that it—it that, uh, it, it surprised us when we did it. And... Uh, It's not like for all this talk about being a a iconoclastic, it was not that. Right. And uh, it reminded me in some ways of Bill Nelson's "Crying to the Sky," that song. Okay. And uh, uh, called yesterday. Our song was called "Yesterday's Gone." And then there's another song that Robert and I wrote on the next my next solo record. And I sent him an email uh, early 2012 that I was going to coming over to England, did he want to get together maybe write another song for my Mm -hmm. next record? And he responded more quickly than usual and said, what are you doing this summer? And I said, well, I told you, I was thinking of coming to England. He goes, no, what are you doing the whole summer? And it just, so I joined them for that. Ultimately, it boiled down to me having 10 days to learn 52 songs uh, before the first show in front of 70,000 people in Pink Pop in Amsterdam. And uh, I managed to do that, and then they asked me to join the band, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Nice. I... And then Reverend guitarist showed up actually to go back uh, in 2007. I ran into Ken and I met Ken and uh, Joe Naylor yeah. at uh, a NAM show. And
0: well, we talk, we talk about talk about your guitars in a minute because I know. Okay. Um, you know, it's an exciting kind of tie-up, and you've had quite a bit to do with with the the, the signature models and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I always think that the guys guys and girls who are kind of watching this always like to try and give them something that uh, they can take away from this. So I'm I'm interested in this a cold songwriting. Yeah, you can give them the cold if you want. But in this kind of a, this this idea that uh, of creating almost a dissonant approach to um, you know. Wh- wh- when 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 you've got a, a, a piece of music that either someone's bought to you and they just want your input on it, or you're, you've you've got licks going around in your head or whatever like that, what sort of stuff are you trying to play? What kind of notes are you trying to put together that create that sort of disharmony that you're?
1: Well, it's it's, uh, I mean, I always view it like more harmony, right? <laughs> you know, or like
0: like, you know, it's a different uh, harmony. Uh,
1: yeah, it's ex- it's extra harmony. <laughs> uh, well. Um, there was, was a song, um, a tin machine song actually. Yep. That was, um, I can't read, which, not, maybe that's a, it's a good simple example. It, it's, um, we were David and I were trying to write. We just started writing the song. We were, we had taken his yacht, his ocean going yacht from he and I and Gary Aldman had taken his yacht <laughs> clang clang clang, clang, ba-dum, clang. Ba-dum, ba-dum, <laughs> ba-dum, had taken his yacht from uh, mystique to we were heading to venezuela and so we're on the boat and david ha- actually has a picture of we're in the stateroom where i had uh, almost all that early stuff was written on a tascam Porta one yep. cassette deck and he had one and i had one and i would just put my cassettes in a in little cassette case, and I'd fly to where you know, because the Tascam Porter 1, which was about the size of a laptop, was just too big to carry, you know. <laughs> so he had one at his house, and I had one at my house. Well, he brought his to his yacht, and um, uh, there's a picture of, of everything looks perfectly normal, except at the moment when the picture was taken, I'm about four inches off the ground, and if you look out the the window of the the stateroom, the ocean is like this. So the boat was in the middle of a big thing, but I'm standing there with the headphones on playing guitar, but I'm up in the air and the boat's at an angle, but the way he was holding the camera, everything looks straight. Anyway, so I don't know if it was because we were in like more tropical climes or climates or the climate or what, but I was thinking, in my head, I was thinking, what about like a bossa nova thing? Like, Like a... And and but like more of a like a um, uh, a metal like an Ornette Coleman bossa nova. So I, I ended up with uh, and that wasn't it and I it ended up becoming Process is I don't know, but sometimes it feels like I'm just, um, I'm just like I'm just pushing. Does it come back to that, the, uh, early in,
0: that early education that you had in in how you should construct a sort of a, a big band?
1: Yeah, I mean the fact that I know how to play a bossa nova, you know, I, I mean, you know, some some guys that that like some some people that are into you know I don't know if Jay Maskus can play a nova you know so maybe the difference is educa- the education I don't I don't know I mean and I I mean I which is no diss of Jay Maskus. I love Dinosaur Jr. but it, uh, something that sounded like uh, originally the chorus was uh So, so the, the secret is the skeleton. Lots of distortion. It's more like it's more like you have a skeleton, and the distortion might be the meat. Yeah. But before you put the meat on the skeleton, you, you break off a few of its ribs. You know, and
0: that's what you get. <laughs> that's the best analogy I think I've ever heard for how to write a song. Um, come on, let's talk about let's talk about Reverend then. Um, because that, I, I, in fairness, is possibly one of your more conventional choices of, of guitar instrument. It might appear so. <laughs>
1: uh, let's get, let's get but, this one over here yeah, as well. Um, this, one, which one would you rather start with? This one. I don't I would, mind. I mean, I never because well, this, this is your
0: official signature, isn't it?
1: Well, no, no they're both official oh, okay. signatures. Just, it's just this one has a name. Right. <laughs> this one came first, so. It, it, what uh, if you want to? Start, oh, I don't no, mind. No, 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 I'll do it in order and. In, in, in the progression of, of, of when we built, when we designed and built the instruments. I mean, this is basically not terribly different from, I mean, I like the first Reverend I got was the, the, uh, the double agent. A- I just heard another voice. Uh, double you agent. literally lip sync that perfectly uh, as well. And uh, this isn't, the body shape isn't different. Uh, from what the body shape of the double agent was at the time. In the pickups, the only difference is there was a P90 Mm -hmm. here on that. And I don't think the first one had a tremolo, if I remember correctly. Uh, So, simple modifications. And then I wanted uh, uh, a true out of phase for the... So I get the Peter Green, BB King thing, or plus with distortion. Just add distortion and it gets very.
2: Uh,
1: it's almost a little bit like uh, even with just plain old distortion, it's it's a little bit more like uh, you hear the octave come out. Yeah, uh, like you would if you had a, a, like a clean octave boost yeah. uh, or a. a, a, f- a f- Octavia yeah um, but so this this one is fairly conventional it's it's in some ways uh, not dissimilar from like a super, what people have called superstrats yeah but the thing about Reverend from the start was all the things that I used to do to make guitars playable like a fender mm-hmm. uh, was I would I uh, I'd, I'd if it could be avoided, I wouldn't use locking, uh, locking nut. Yeah. Um, and I wanted travel on, the, on the tremolo. And I, I find that, uh, as the closer you can stay to a, uh, um, to the original, um, strat design, basically, in as much as having a solid, as first, vers- not ha- having a solid base plate with, yeah. with, with, uh, uh, the old style uh, single saddles. There's something about the tonal transfer that happens there, and having the block in the back. Yeah, you know, hidden under the hidden under the plate. But uh, this is this is really just.
2: But it's
1: still in tune. Yeah, as in tune as it was when I picked it up, and uh, um, it essentially is everything that I needed in a guitar, and it was already there: locking machines, graphite nut, a, a tremolo that 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 sounds good and stays in tune, and we added the phase shift, I mean the phase uh, switch, and uh, you know. I like to, on mine, I like to change the angle on this. Yeah. So instead of having a blade switch, we just uh, put a, a, a regular toggle in so anyone that gets it can, can uh, put it where they, where they want. And then the other secret weapon, I think, in it is the base roll-off. can turn two humbuckers into a s- tele sound if you want to. So, that,
0: that switch on there, I'd always assume that that was a coil split, but it's a phase reverse yeah. it, on yeah. that. Yep. So, you've uh, gone telecaster through to. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, that's, and that's with the, with the bottom roll, so you get more, more spank out. And this this is what um, this is what I I played for quite a few years and still do uh, for songs where I need radical tremolo stuff.
0: Yeah. That Wilkinson trem is is just about the best sort of non-Floyd Rose yeah. trem that you can get for that kind of well, stuff. I, isn't I it?
1: never and I was never a fan of the the fussiness of the Floyd Rose, and I had a Strat with a Kaler yeah. on it. I think my the trem on the original. Parker guitars was nice, and that was a, a one-off, innovative design with the axle on each side.
0: That was a proprietary, yeah, uh, yeah, completely. Parker thing, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: And uh, um, the Steinberger one
0: was was good. Yes. Until well, that was Ned's own. That was Ned's own yeah, design as well, and, wasn't until it?
1: Until they sold to Gibson, and then I used to go through a tremolo every. Month or every two months, because the cam would wear out. That the axle yep. went through, yep. and you tune it up, everything would be fine. The mo- moment you move the bar, it wouldn't return. Yeah, you know, nice thing about the these uh, is the the fact that you've got the knife edge yep. and just two two uh, uh, set screws. It they come to, back in tune. And it needs to be such a hard metal, isn't it? Uh, but. Yep. Yeah. And and in fact, you can warble all day long, <laughs> um, but the the bass roll off has has. Uh, um, I mean, I used I used this model guitar f- up to 2013 with The Cure, and you know I could get Gretsch-like sounds out of it because some things require yeah. that, or telecast like You know, you roll up... because the, uh, the way the uh, tone control the volume control is on these guitars you when you back off the, the volume it doesn't get darker like Gibson's yeah. do y- yeah you still retain the sparkle yeah. and you get that kind of crinkly uh, uh, tiltatron sound out of it. but uh, from there um, once once I had,
0: um, was the was the satin finish your idea to do uh, No. That? So that they, they no, were it was, just.
1: It was gloss first, and then it was, then. Uh, I think Ken suggested the the satin finish, and. Uh, uh, I'm not sure white. if they're still. Are they all are they satin now? Some are. Some are. Some are. Yeah. Depends on what you want. Just talk to Ken. He'll make whatever you want.
0: No, I think It's a great guitar. I love these pickups too. Love these pickups. Well, I
1: didn't even get yeah. I didn't get into those. Originally, um, I had just two regular uh, Joe Nailer humbuckers, which are like hot PAFs. Yeah. And uh, well, and actually, the original guitar just had a had a P90, which yeah. um, Is I think the best sounding P90 i've been able to find and and i know guys that pull them out of their gibson pull out the gibson p-90s and put put the Joe Naylor really ones in there and then after uh after joining the cure and realizing that bigsby i mean i can you know i've used tremolos enough over the years that 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 uh, um, i can kind of mimic a bigsby with a with a Mm -hmm. strat style tremor but uh but I had, it, I had this thing in my head that, that uh, I did a record with Bill Nelson, we did a, 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 a duo record. And I, I had seen him when I was 18 with, with uh, Bebop Deluxe, and he had a 3-4-5, Gibson 3-4-5 with the Bigsby on it, yeah. and I got to play it when we were doing a bunch of times, and actually used it on some of the record. But his tremolo was so worn in, uh, though it didn't stay in tune all that well, it was so soft that it, it reminded me what I liked about the Kalers. Right. What I liked about uh, the uh, Jazzmaster-style tremolos. Um and I was convinced that, you know, that was probably wear and tear on the spring, mm-hmm. that his spring was softer. And I had a, another friend in Nashville named Nick Kane that played with a group called the Mavericks. And he had a less Les Black Beauty Les Paul. Um, and he called it his Hillbilly Floyd Rose. Because he could go, you know, he could draw, and And it would stay in tune. So I started thinking about the... The spring and and the, the I was always afraid of Bigsby, so I spent uh, I think winter 2013 taking Bigsby's apart and seeing what if I right. could find what the flaw was if there if there was a flaw, you know and and I came to the I came to the conclusion that in the process destroying a custom shop Gibson 335 uh, or at least its value um, that um, because I used that as my prototype guitar for for my tremolo experiments, that it was a spring thing. So I I I just chased down springs from various sources, and I narrowed it down to like three or four, and put a roller bridge on it, and locking machines, and uh, discovered that a longer I had one a spring that was longer and softer, yeah, which usually doesn't work for people. But long in this case, longer and softer was a good idea, and and um, um, I'll be here all week trying to Uh Anyway, when we and then I I had I sent it to Joe Naylor who had who had several thousand made I think to get him. He had there was if I and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a company that. That checked the tensile strength and, and and matched it to the correct diameter because it wasn't the right diameter, and um, um, we had a uh, we had a spring that that wouldn't fall out when you pulled up because I'd had that happen right on more than one occasion when I when I pulled pulled the bar up that the when I let go of the bar the spring would be on the floor. <laughs>
0: No, it's there's definitely a sound, isn't it? The Bixby. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, I thought it's, you meant when the spring falls out. No, I've, <laughs> I've always, I, again, I'm a, I'm a fan of the sort of the the sound of a Bixby trim, but I always struggle to. There's so much physical movement required to get, but, it to do something.
1: Yeah, there is. But what what I discovered was that that for myself. I mean, I don't mean to sound like I discovered this for all mankind. I discovered for myself that that I liked the fact that I got less pitch change for more movement. I always yeah. had this guitar yeah.
0: if I wanted that immediate that, that's your more brutal your, your Hank Marvin kind of yeah. you know very little movement for quite a nice tremolo whereas the Bigsby you've, you've yep. really got to give it some, haven't you? But it creates a different tone and a different but sort of vibe. I don't vibe. know
1: maybe maybe this picks up a little bit of the slack literally and figuratively this spring but um what it let me do was on well, anyway, I went through the whole Bigsby thing, and I arrived at the spring that I thought I like. I'm trying to organize my thought, <laughs> and uh, uh, but the other voices in my head are getting in the way. Uh, and then I, <laughs> we'll started, I started thinking about uh, what pitches I wanted, like where the bridge where this ah, should okay. be located on the yeah, body, yeah. Um, and uh, so I moved the moved the Bigsby around on the three three five, and drilled some more holes and then <laughs> measured it and figured it out and I knew that I don't, that I didn't want the, the volume controls to be the volume control to be where it would be on a Strat, I wanted it in line with the bridge because yeah. I tend to palm mute mm-hmm. a fair amount and I knew if I, if I had my hand on the bridge I would always be able to just go straight yeah. down to the volume control. Um, so all these, these little things and I wanted a kill switch Oh, okay. And I wanted a guitar that had the properties of a of a three, uh, of a three three five, without the feedback problem. And I had had at one point a BB King guitar that had a sealed top. Yeah. And then I and then so this is
0: semi semi solid. This is uh, so this a is center block and this
1: has got a center block like a three three okay. five, but it's it's a it's a semi acoustic or semi no hollow oh, with no cool. f holes. Um, so then I I finally I, I made I guess strong a strong enough case that 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 uh, um, Ken agreed to to take, bring me to, to for an audience with Joe Naylor at his castle and uh, um, <laughs> strong enough case you asked and uh, yeah <laughs> and I was and like yeah cool it, let's do that and so we went we went we went to see Joe and I wanted I. What I what I had in my head was I wanted some kind of guitar that looked like, if you saw a picture of Vic Flick playing on a, a John Barry soundtrack, right, from the '60s, and he had that guitar, you wouldn't think it wasn't possible. Yeah, that that you know, so it had this like I had this future retro thing in my head, but I wanted it to play like a modern guitar. Yeah, and uh, so the usual uh, reverend things like a graphite knot, this has got a, it's a white yeah. graphite, locking machines. Um, and while we were at Joe's house, we were looking, at, he had uh, he had architectural drawings, of, or not architectural, he had schematics, schematics yeah. of different guitar shapes, and I thought to myself, well, why not, so that it hangs with the, um, with, the whole reverend uh, catalog. That's not a radical departure. What if we took something like the sensei, which is yeah. which is here, and just made it a little bit bigger, yeah. and not so big that for some people like the 335 is too big. Yeah. Uh, big enough that it would make me look smaller when I was standing behind it, <laughs> and but not so big that the average person couldn't play it. And uh, so we arrived at the shape, which is really just a, we, the, the horns come out a little bit. And then I wanted a segmented pickguard, which uh, I think initially that was sort of problematic. Couldn't figure out how to do it. And then uh, Joe sent me a drawing like this but without it being segmented and I said well what if you just segment the horns yeah and I was thinking of John Cipollino who played with Quicksilver Messenger Service who had SGs that had all this extra cut up pickguard on it that looked very bat-wingish. yeah so there were all these disparate uh, influences that have to do with the the
0: the cosmetics of the guitar I do think that the split pickguard thing is is very cool this and that you're not the other artists i think have copied there doesn't the billy corgan do something similar where they've got the sort of the split maybe we shouldn't say that billy copied it but you know as in no I you can, can say, say that okay billy copied it but where you know where you've got this and it does it it's like you know realistically what is it it's a, it's an entirely aesthetic thing but it completely yeah. it sets the guitar off well, really. and to me nicely. It was a burns
1: thing Yes. I mean, too, you know? Yeah. So so which goes back to the Vic Flick thing. And so yeah. in, on my planet, everything is fitting together at this point <laughs> while we are discussing it. And then the kill switch, which... Uh, ...was apparently on, but... ...which is something I like about Gibson's is that I can... Yeah. And because you don't have that... I've had guitars with the tap switches, but you're going from on to off, so it's hard to make it work rhythmically, Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas if you can do the thing like you do on a Les Paul where you have it off in that yeah. position. But the other benefit and byproduct of this is, especially with a band like The Cure where there's a history of uh, Bigsby's and Jazzmasters, you often hear... You hear that, oh, okay. that that just random jangle. Yeah. So I wanted to be able to do that, but a byproduct of that is to be able to do so
0: that Nashville B bend thing. I saw you doing that in in the jam. Yeah, you can do it up here too if you want. But it's all, that's always really hurt my fingers to do yeah. it up here. Is there a little bit less tension? Down here? So oh there's yeah, a, a lot do. less. Yeah.
1: And uh, plus I like. I mean, when we get into the noisier. You can drive the string from behind the bridge. And it you kind of hear
0: the pick attack, you kind of don't, but it's. Uh, You'll like this, you should experiment. Um, I wait. should what <laughs> yeah experiment at Bernie Marsden's uh, recently and he got his double neck ES-1275 out
1: and lets the, the drone strings ring while he's playing so he,
0: yeah, so he plays the 6th string but with the pickups off mm-hmm. but leaves the pickups for the 12th yeah. string on yeah. and I kid you not it sounded like a church organ yeah it was the great like just all this natural reverb church organ it sounded amazing yeah. so like, I'm, a, I'm into this kind of idea of playing all the bits on the guitar that you're not really supposed to play to see what happens. Well that was one
1: of the things that goes back to Tin Machine, you know, there was, we'd lived through the 80s where uh, DX7s and all that stuff had come in, after the 70s where it was a hands-on analog world and and, you know, you were, you were changing oscillators and pass filters, you know, and it was more organic, and then you went to the digital thing, where it was the DX7 and 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 less spontaneous in terms of manipulating sounds in real time. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, I mean, I started serrating the back of my pick, and you this I need to actually I keep sandpaper on top of my amp, so I can use my guitar pick yeah. as a bow. Yeah. And and there's there's parts in. Um, uh, Song called The Hung- Hungry Ghosts, uh, a cure song, where I actually use the pick as a bow while I'm playing. Uh, and, and um, you know, I, what I wanted to do was, I felt like inside the guitar there were all of these sounds that it's, a, it's a, almost a, and this could probably goes back to art school, it's like, you know, when you take a picture and you blow up an aspect of it. Uh, you know, like you take a picture of a corner of that acoustical tile, and you blow it up, you start to see the the, the beauty in the in the the texture of the object. Yeah. And it stops being the object; it just becomes the thing yeah. it is. And like the drone strings ringing on the on this the double neck guitar, you hear a church organ. You know, you could look at that and you could see a lunar landscape. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so, my thing was to take all these little microphonic or uh, microscopic and squeaks and bonks and microphonic sounds and blow, you know, record them as loud as you could and bring them up into the mix. Yeah. And, and it's all, but the guitar is the sound source. And in the late 80s, my thing was I wanted to keep. The electric guitar, alive and viable as um, as something more than just you know as much as I love Tom Petty, yeah. uh, something you strum, yeah. you know, or uh, and and that was that was all part and part and parcel of the whole thing, which is why you know those things you know i mean trying to find a well look at jimmy page jimmy page found the crap you know found he'd have a space in the mix and he'd find the right crappy sound mm-hmm. that would make the whole thing sound brilliant and it's it's just to be open minded to those sonic possibilities is the thing to go back to the guitar the with this um, so bigsby soft touch spring as it's become known locking tuners uh, bend behind the nut I mean behind the bridge but then and you can also drive and there's times for all of us where we're playing and we start to lose a note we think the note's going to sing it's going to sustain and it starts to fade you can get it going again it's like jump starting <laughs> your car but the other thing with this spring is that um, you know you do all the, the wobbles and things like that. Well you can actually do that. things you're not supposed to be able to do with the big thing. To the bigsby and the the rate at which the pitch changes, you can do almost everything that you would do with with that style tremolo. It's just a matter of familiarity and taste which one you choose.
0: That's cool. Well, so what's the what's what's next then for you? Are you you committed to more cure stuff or you? Oh,
1: we're well. I'm I'm you know I'm a member of the band, so uh, whatever we do next is. Whatever the band decides to do is what where I'll be writing and I've got performing uh, yep and I've got uh, there's more stuff in the coming year and there's uh, uh, plus I've got uh, a live record from uh, actually two live records one from Nashville one from uh, Manchester with my band which is Reeves Gabrels and his imaginary friends uh, and uh, we're gonna put those out at some point this year and do another tour with that based on whatever else I'm doing, so... good for you, man. And my, you know, having just finished the six-month tour two days ago, uh, my current plan is to sit in front of the fireplace and watch the snowfall and talk to the cats and watch old movies.
0: Sounds like the perfect way Old to spend black Christmas. And white movies. Well, good for you. And it, look, I'm so pleased you came over and spent sure. some time with us. It, it, it's a real pleasure to talk to you, know, talk to you about your the, the, the way you approach music and guitar, and it, you know, it's been it's been a real education. Lots of fun. <laughs> no, it has been. <laughs> Don't you are, try this at home. No, do try. I guess I think that's the moral well, is you, you have do to try, you try, you have to at try it at home. Before yeah, do try it at home, before not in front of seventy thousand people. <laughs> well, I can't say I am i haven't done that though <laughs> well, look, man, i have tried it in front. I, I do appreciate it. and thanks to, to reverend as well for kind of bringing you over but look, it's been lovely thank you so much and i'll put a link in the description below where you can find out more about reeves if you want to yeah be great. um and and more about the guitars so look that's cool thank you very much for watching and i shall see you next time thanks for listening to our latest podcast if you enjoyed it hit that subscribe button see you next time